Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you all. Those of you who are new at Crosspoint, so uh, welcome and uh, glad that you're here with us this morning. We'd love a chance to, to get to meet you, and uh, I hope that you'll join uh, Micah and the crew at the connecting point at the, after the gathering this morning. Hey, um, we are in a series. This is the second week of a teaching series that we have embarked on, and the series is called RE, and the teaching series is all about restoration. Did you know? that God has a restoration plan for your life. And the plan that he has is to radically transform you from the inside out, to become more and more like his son, Jesus. So his plan is to come inside of your heart and cause grace to spring up and to begin a new work of new life, to cause that to spill over into the relationships around you, and ultimately to move out and change the world. And that's what this series is all about. It's all about restoration. And so what you're going to hear time and time again as we go through this series is the kindest thing you can do for yourself is to participate with God in his restoration plan for your life. So be kind, please re. Now, as it turns out, this restoration plan that's in scripture can be captured in a number of different re words. Uh, Last week, Micah spoke, and he talked about the importance of remembering the gospel. And didn't he do a fantastic job, Micah, last week? Let's give it up for Micah. That was awesome. Uh, And and that's an important topic because remembering the gospel is important for us, not only when we begin the journey of faith, but as we continue the journey of faith, we always must remember the gospel and do it through the lens of the gospel. Uh, Well, this week, our reword is perhaps one of the least favorite rewords in scripture. It's the reword that is uh, most misunderstood. It's, it's the reword that most people don't want to talk about. And of course, this reword, as you see on the screen today, is repent. Now, repent is, isn't the kind of word that comes up in our everyday language, is it? I mean, uh, it doesn't usually come up around the family dinner table. You know, let's talk about repentance today. Uh, it it's not brought up by talk show hosts or you don't hear about it in the locker room. Uh, it, it's probably not something you should talk about in a first date conversation, okay? Just a little bit of advice for our, our people who are seeking a relationship with those of the opposite sex, okay? Repentance is not a good thing, right? That's not something you want to talk about. You probably won't get a second date if it's something that you're going to talk about in that conversation. I, I just try to imagine my first date with Karen as we went out to taco time together and, and I sat across the table from her and I was like, hey baby, you're so cute. You know, you want to talk about repentance? <laughs> after, after we go home and, and you can look at my Dungeons and Dragons collection and uh, you can pet my cat, you know, it's, it's not a good winner for a first date conversation. Repentance Repent is not something we like to hear about. Often, when we think of the word repent, what comes to mind? I mean, we think of, of angry preachers standing on street corners or, or sweaty televangelists staring down at us from their podiums or, or those guys and girls who go to 
funerals with picket signs with big bold letters that say, repent, repent, repent. It's, it's the word of radicals. It's the word of people who take the fun out of fundamentalism. The vernacular of killjoys and, and those people who just take life a little bit too seriously. But here's the thing. It's a Bible word. In fact, it's a Jesus word. And if you track through Jesus' public ministry throughout the Gospels, he used the word quite a lot. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, it, the, the, the author Matthew says that Jesus began his public ministry with this one word. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So as followers of Jesus, okay, if we're followers of Jesus and we take the Bible seriously, we simply cannot dodge this word. We cannot take this word from our vocabulary. Instead, what I am hoping today is that we will understand that repent is one of the most life-giving words you will ever own. And that God's restoration plan for your life cannot happen without repentance. So, today what I want to do is I, I just want to talk about, at the beginning, I want to talk about three truths about repentance. And after that, I want us to look at how we can experience restoration through repentance. But I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Can we pray together? Uh, Father, thanks so much for this amazing word. And thanks for the the way it makes us feel uncomfortable. Because we know, God, that when we're uncomfortable, that's when we are growing. And so, God, we pray that you would take the word today and you'd speak to our hearts, you'd apply it, you'd get into us, our hearts, soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and you'd do your great work. And we're open to you, God. We open up our hearts to say, speak to us, teach us, lead us, restore us. And we pray these things in the powerful, resurrected name of Jesus. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's the first truth about repentance. Number one, repentance is a change of mind, is a changed mind. You know, I think what sets people off about repentance when you hear that word is largely because we have a great misunderstanding about what repentance actually is. This misunderstanding is that we think repentance means to feel really bad. That we think repentance means to feel really, 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 really sorry. And that's probably the impression that we get from the angry, yelly street preacher guy, right? That we should feel really, really, really bad. But repentance actually doesn't mean to feel really sorry. In the New Testament, the, the, the word repent is, the Greek word is uh, metaneo. And the interesting thing about that is it combines two words. Uh, metaneo, uh, first of all, uses the word meta, which means to change, and neo is, is derived from the Greek word, uh, which means mind. Essentially, what it means is it puts these words together, and repentance means a changed mind. And that's really what repentance is. Repentance is a decision to change your mind. You see, repentance happens when you agree with God that you're going in the wrong direction, right? And so you turn to God and you say you're sorry and, and you, you ask for his mercy and then you decide in your mind that you're going to go in the opposite direction. That's really what repentance is. So repentance isn't simply feeling bad about we've, what you've done. Now, I, I, to, to explain this better and to show us this better, I want to look at one passage of scripture that the apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's what he said, starting in verse 9. He says, yet now I am happy... Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. 
For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So what, what, what Paul is saying here, he's, he's saying, listen, there is a difference. There's a big difference between sorrow for sin and repentance. Now, sorrow for sin might lead to repentance, but sorrow for sin is not repentance. Because here's the thing, as many of you probably know this, you can feel sorry about what you did, but still not repent, right? Because that's what worldly sorrow is. It's just feeling really bad about what you, but you don't actually do something about it. Godly sorrow ultimately leads to repentance. It leads to a changed mind. So let me, let, me un, let me unpack this for you practically. So let, let's say you do something wrong, something really, really wrong. I don't know. Just plain stupid. I don't know. You, you, covet, you covet your neighbor's snowblower, right? Or uh, you, you steal some elastic bands from work. I don't know. Whatever, whatever your, your thing is, okay? And you feel bad about what you've done. You feel guilt, regret, shame, maybe a little bit of sorrow. And you know what? There's a reason why you feel this way. The Bible says... It's because you have a conscience. You have a conscience. Your conscience is your inner GPS. It, it is your Google Maps for life. Okay? And, and it points you in the right direction. And when you're going in the wrong direction, it redirects you back to the right way to go. The Bible says it's that part of you that judges your thoughts. It judges your attitudes. And ultimately, it judges your actions. You, you have a conscience. And that's a good thing. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit actually communicates to us is through our conscience. Because here's the thing. Our, our consciences are a little bit dis distorted. They're distorted because we have this thing in us that's called a sinful nature, right? And so sometimes our, our inner compass, our inner GPS doesn't always work. And so the Holy Spirit comes along and he works with us through our conscience. And he says things like, you know, why did you say that? That wasn't a great thing to say. Or did you see what you did there? That, that was probably wrong. Or, or you have a, there's a better way to live. Did you know that? There's a better way for you to go forward in your life. So when you step out of line in your life, what happens is, your conscience starts firing, right? And because of this, you have a response in your heart and you feel, well, you feel guilty. You might feel sorrow. You might feel a little bit of regret, shame, frustration for making the same mistake again and again. And Paul says here in 2 Corinthians, he says that this godly sorrow that you feel, this visceral response that you have, ultimately leads you to repentance, okay? It makes you want to change your minds about sin. How many of you ever used Google Maps before? Anyone? Come on. Fess up, yeah? Okay, and you know you use Google Maps, and, and you take you to a destination, and you get to the destination, and you're not quite paying attention, or it's not working quite right, and you drive past the destination. You ever had that happen? Okay? And oftentimes what happens, if it's in the right type of a street, Google Maps will tell you, make a U-turn at the next intersection, or make a U-turn at such and such a street, right? And so you make a U-turn, you turn around, and you go back to your destination. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a spiritual U-turn that begins in the mind to turn away from what's killing you, to turn towards what's going to give you life, to turn away from darkness, and to turn towards light. That's what repentance is. So I'm wondering, and I'm asking you this morning to consider this. Do you need a change of mind? Do you need a spiritual U-turn in your life? Well, here's the second truth. The second truth is this. Repentance is a changed direction. 
It's a changed direction. See, here's the thing. Is repentance doesn't actually stop in your mind. It begins in your mind, but ultimately it must continue in your actions. You see, if your mind is truly changed, then your direction should ultimately change. Let's, let's look at a text from Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 6. God is speaking to his people, the nation of Israel. They're in exile. They've turned their backs away from God. They're following idols. They're going in the wrong direction. And here's what it says. Therefore, say to the people of Israel... This is what the sovereign Lord says. Repent, turn from your idols, and renounce all your detestable practices. Notice what follows repentance here. Action, right? Activity. Cast down your idols. Get rid of them. Stop doing what you're doing before. Change your practices. Let me, let me give you another example from Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 4 to 5. God is speaking directly to the church in Ephesus through this letter. Here's what it says. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So this was a group of people. They, they, they once loved God fiercely, uh, but at somewhere along the way, their love for God had grown cold. Like a, like a coal that just kind of loses all of its heat until it eventually blackens out. So they'd fallen away from God. They'd fallen in love with other things. And so God called them out on it. And God said to them, you need to repent. You need to change your minds. But not only to change your minds. You notice what it says in the text. He says, do the things you did at first. See, repentance isn't just a changed mind. Ultimately, it leads to a change in direction. Now, I think, I think most of us are familiar with the story of the prodigal son, right? It's, it's perhaps one of the most well-told or well-known stories in Scripture. You've got this young man, he's, he's living under his parents' roof, um, but ultimately he wants to be free, he wants to experience all that the world has to offer him. So he goes to his father and he says, Father, I want you to give me my inheritance early. I want you to give me my portion of the inheritance which actually, if you know the backdrop of the context, that was completely unheard of in that culture. There was no policy. There was no precedent. There was no tradition for this. People never asked for an early inheritance in that culture. The only way in that culture that you could get your inheritance was to have your father die. And so what the son was saying to the father was actually a remarkable insult. He was saying to him, Dad, I wish you were dead and I value my freedom more than I value you. What a way to begin a story. And so how did the father respond? Well, the father actually responded graciously, and he gave his son his inheritance. And so as the story goes, the son went off. He went off to a foreign land, and uh, he blew his money on wild living, is what the text says. So he, you know, he smoked a lot of blunts, ate a lot of Doritos, slept with a lot of girls, you know, went to a lot of raves. He had a great time. And then one day, the money ran out, and he was stuck starving, a stranger in a strange land with no social safety net to help him. And so all that he could do is he decided he was going to hire himself out to a farmer, feeding pig slop to a bunch of hogs. That's what he ended up doing. And, and as a Jewish man, I mean, he could not have gone any lower. Because think about this, in a Jewish culture, pigs are unclean animals. They, they make you ceremonially unclean if you come in their presence and if you touch them. And there he was feeding them pig slop. And yet the pigs he discovered were better off than he was. The text says he looked at the pigs and what they were eating, and he, he longed to eat what the pigs were eating there in the muck and in the mire. 
So this was his, his darkest hour. It was his lowest low. And I don't know about you, but have you ever been there before? Have you ever been so far from God that you thought yeah, there was never any way that you'd find your way back again? Find your, find your way back home into the Father's presence. You ever felt that way before? But then something happened in the story. He's up to his elbows in pig slop, and an unshakable thought begins to form in his mind. And we hear this thought in, in the rest of the text in Luke 15. Let's read it. Here's what it says. It says, when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out, and I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your slave. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, and he went to his father. Did you notice in the story where the change began to begin, where it began? It began in his mind. What did he say? He came to his senses. It began in his mind. But it didn't stop there. You'll notice what happens in verse 20. In verse 20 says that he got up and he went to his father. So repentance begins with a changed mind, but repentance continues with a changed direction. Well, what happened next? Let's keep reading the story. It says, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, there's a really critical detail in the story that we do not want to miss today. We need to pay attention to the location of the father in the story. Okay, so here's the thing. You see, he wasn't at home stewing in his lazy boy. Right? He, wasn't, he wasn't pacing around the living room, grinding his teeth, remembering what his son had done. He wasn't on his computer looking at his financials, realizing just uh, how much money he had lost, lamenting the loss of his inheritance. Jesus says that the father saw the son when he was a long way off. Where was the father in the story? The father in the story was outside the house anticipating the arrival of the son, waiting for him to come home, down at the end of the road. And when he saw the son, what did he do? It says that the father ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And this is, this is another super important detail in the story that we cannot ignore. See, here's the thing. In, in the first century, in that culture, in that day and age, middle-aged men did not run. They did not. It would have been an utterly shameful act if a middle-aged man picked up and ran after his son. They did not do it. And partly it's just very, very practical because in order for them to run, they would have had to hike up their rope and then start running in the wind, okay? Exposing themselves to everybody around them. You get the picture, okay? It was a shameful act for a middle-aged man to do this in the story. 
So I want you to think about this. Who was the one that was most deserving of shame in the story? It was the son. And the son knew it. I mean, you remember, we read it, right? He assumed that when he got back home, he would have to grovel in order to gain his father's attention, his father's favor. But instead, in the story, the father took the son's shame and he took it upon himself. And we see here in the story a a beautiful picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. On the cross of Jesus Christ, he carried our guilt and he carried our shame. Jesus was mocked. He was beaten. He was stripped naked. They hurled insults on him. They strung him up on a hill between two thieves. He was shamed for all the world to see, which was the purpose of Roman crucifixion, was to shame your enemies. And Jesus on the cross, he carried our guilt and he carried our shame. So that Romans 10 verse 11, the apostle Paul says, anyone who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. The father took the son's shame in the story. And then the grace of the father, as we read the story, it just keeps going and going. He throws a party for his son. He puts his ring on him, the sign of his authority. He puts, gives him sandals. He gives him the robe. These are all marks of sonship. These are all marks of reinheritance. These are all marks of restoration in the story. This is amazing grace. And friends, we need to get this because this is the Father's response to our repentance. And if there's anything we should take away from this story, it's just simply this. We'll put it up on the screen. Repentance isn't so much about what you're fleeing from, but who you're fleeing to. It's not about who you're fleeing from, but who you're fleeing to. We are fleeing to a God of grace who has turned his faith towards us, who's willing to carry our guilt and our shame, and who's ready to receive us and restore us. And so Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, it challenges us with this probing question. Here's what it says. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It is God's kindness, not his wrath. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Let me ask you this this morning. Could it be, could it be that how you see God is actually what keeps you from repentance? That you have a wrong or obscured vision of who God actually is. And that's what's keeping you from repenting. So repentance is a changed mind. Repentance is a changed direction. But here's the final truth. Repentance is a changed life. It's a changed life. And like I said, we're going to say it again and again through this series. Be kind, please re. And the kindest thing you can do for yourself is to participate with Jesus in his restoration plan for your life. And here's the thing. You cannot participate in his restoration plan for your life without repentance. It actually, it simply just cannot be done. It's impossible. You know, there's this story in, in the book of Acts where, where Peter and John, it's in Acts chapter 3, they, it's very new. The Christian church has just been, re, uh, just been born. And, and, and there's this story in Acts chapter 3 where they find this man, a, a, a beggar, a crippled beggar, and, and they lay hands on him and they heal him. 
and he, he gets radically healed. And, and of course, all the people who see this happen are just like blown away because they know this crippled beggar has been begging at the gate their whole lives. As a matter of fact, this guy's been crippled from birth, okay, which makes this, this story even more miraculous. So the crowd gathers, and, and, and of course, Peter and John think, well, this is a great opportunity to talk about Jesus. Makes sense, right? So they start talking about Jesus, and they, they talk to the crowd, and they explain, listen, it's not us. We didn't heal him. It was Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who healed this crippled beggar. But you need to realize, crowd, that you're the ones who actually killed this Jesus. But God, in his great mercy, raised him up from the dead. And then they said this, and we read it in the text. It says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing might come from the Lord. Here's the thing. God is, God is not out to ruin our lives. God is not out to make our lives miserable. God's, God's not a celestial killjoy who's just trying to take away all of our fun in life. What God ultimately wants for us is times of refreshing. And you might think, well, that's kind of a strange expression, times of refreshing. What does that mean? Well, it is a strange expression. As a matter of fact, it's the only place in Scripture where this expression actually occurs. And so a lot of scholars have kind of puzzled, well, what does that mean, times of refreshing? Um, it's the only place you'll find it in the Bible. So what does it mean? Well, imagine if you lived in an arid region like the Middle East, where Jesus lived, and you go through a whole month of plus 30 degrees Celsius temperature, the dry season. I mean, it is so dry that, that you're just, every day you're just covered in sweat, but the sweat doesn't last so long because it just evaporates, right? And you feel like you're, you're, you're melting in butter, Every, every single day, and the, the, the heat has just sapped the energy from you. You barely have a, enough drive to, to move your muscles. And, and the land, too, is parched. The land is so parched. The flowers and the grass are withering. Animals are dying of thirst. It's dry. But then one day, at the end of the day, as the sun's going down, a breeze stirs. It comes in off the, 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 the ocean, or, or it comes down off of the mountains. And with this breeze, suddenly comes this cooler air. The air pressure system is changing. And then water, mist, a light rain begins to pour. And it pours more and more and more. And it starts flooding everything. What has happened is the monsoon season has begun. You're in a new season. You're in a new time. We're new life. And then so the flowers and the grass begin springing to life. And you yourself, who used to be melting like butter and was sapped of all your energy, suddenly for you, you are refreshed. You come to life. You experience restoration. <coughs> Most scholars would agree that what Jesus is talking about here, what the apostles are talking about here, it symbolizes God's restoration work in his people, in the now and in the age to come. Friends, the, the promise on the other side of repentance and you have to get to the other side of repentance to receive the promise. But the promise on the other side of repentance is restoration. You see, here's the thing about sin. Sin is a, sin is a killer. It is. It destroys relationships. It eats us up on the inside. It saps us of our joy. It separates us from God. And ultimately, if we allow it to run its course, it carves a path to our destruction. That's what sin does. 
And so to get to restoration, you have to deal with the problem of sin in our lives. And repentance turns away from sin. It turns towards God. It turns away from what's killing us to the one who can give us life. It turns away from darkness towards light. And you can experience this restoration in your life. This is God's promise to you. And I wonder today if some of you are maybe due for a new season. If some of you today are due for a season of restoration in your life, wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't that be great? So let me talk about this. Let me talk about how you can have a radically restored life. Here's here's a key to a radically restored life with Jesus. Make repentance a continued posture and a daily habit. Make repentance a continued posture and a daily habit. Let me talk about what I mean by continued posture. What it means is is, is to have a heart that wants to love what God loves and hate what God hates. It's a heart that ultimately wants to please God and wants to become more and more like Him. That is the continued posture. And when you have a heart like that, basically what that means is you have both hands on the steering wheel at all times, and you are ready to make a spiritual U-turn when you start going in the wrong direction. That's a posture of repentance. You know, it was was Martin Luther, the the, the great Reformation monk, uh, who started it all, who famously said this. He said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. The whole life of believers should be repentance. In other words, our whole lives should be set in this posture and this readiness of repentance. But you see, here's the thing. is The opposite of repentance is destructive. And the opposite of a repentance posture is defensiveness. A defensive posture is, is a posture that says, I've got a heart that really doesn't want to change. I've got a heart that's not willing to change. I want to keep doing what I'm doing. And, and let me just tell you this morning, de- defensiveness is not where you want to be if you want to experience the abundant life that Christ has for you. Defensiveness, uh, well, here's what Scripture says about defensiveness. Let, let me read it in James chapter 4 and verse 6. It says that God gives us more grace, but this is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. See, the thing about a humble person is they're open to God. uh, They're willing to change. They're very self-aware. They know that they need to change when change is is, is in the wind. But the proud person is just the opposite. The proud person is is stubborn. They're defensive. They won't be led by God. They kind of want life on their own terms. So there's a difference. But it's interesting what Scripture says is that if you have a humble posture, if you have a posture that's open, that's ready for repentance, it says God's grace is for you. It's right there for you. But if, but if you choose pride, if you choose defensiveness, essentially you're playing quarterback on the other team opposite God. And it's not that God just leaves you alone. It says that God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. He opposes defensiveness. So what might defensiveness look like? Well, let me give you three signs very quickly of what defensiveness might look like. Here's the first sign. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Uh, self-righteousness is when we're satisfied with our own good behavior. You know, it's when we think we've arrived. It's, and, and I've discovered that it's, it's, it's pretty easy to feel satisfied if the standard for my life is really low. If I want to be self-righteous, I just set the bar really low and I, I feel like I'm doing pretty good. Or what I do is I just measure myself according to other people. It's like, oh, Harry, well, I'm, I'm so much better than Harry. I mean, he's an axe murderer, right? I'm awesome. 
All we have to do, set the bar low, find somebody who's way lower than you on what we assume is the moral ethical scale, okay? Self-righteousness. But Jesus taught that sin is more than keeping the rules. Jesus taught that sin actually runs deep. It, it runs deep in the human heart. And when we measure ourselves, we're not supposed to take other people as our moral standard. Instead, we use God's holiness and God's goodness as our moral standard. And let me tell you, when you rub, rub up against God's goodness and God's holiness, you discover very quickly that you need to change. I mean, this is what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter 6. When he saw the Lord seated on the throne, he had this incredible vision of God, right? And when he really saw God for who God is, he said, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And this is what happens when you choose and you decide to come close to God, and to know God, to become like God. And you rub up against God, and you realize, wow, there is so far. There is so far I have to go. Self-righteousness is, is a defensive posture. But here's the other sign of defensiveness. The blame game. The blame game. This is where we just kind of become addicted to justifying our actions. And I've been there, right? You know, the reason I did this, well, is because I was tired. Or the reason I did this was, oh, it's Fred's fault. He made me angry, right? Or, or see, we sometimes play the victim card, right? So we don't have to accept accountability for our own actions. We're always the victim. We're always the victim. Woe is me. Everyone's against me. And essentially, we're too busy pointing the finger at everybody else that we never actually discover where we need to change. I mean, this is, this is human nature, friends. I mean, this is Adam and Eve in the garden, right? When God confronts them for their sin, what is it? Adam's like, well, it wasn't me, it was the woman, right? And he confronts Eve, you know, it wasn't me, it was the snake, right? Everyone's playing the blame game. Everybody's pointing at somebody else, but nobody's willing to own their own stuff. Listen, if you want to be radically mature, you want to be transformed, you want to look like Jesus, here's all you got to do. The beginning point, just own your stuff. Just be honest about what needs to change. And make the change. And make the change. If you don't own your stuff, you never change and you never get better. And God wants you to get better. And you can be better. Now here's the third sign. The third sign is what's called a seared conscience. A seared conscience. And, and, and what do I mean by this? Well, the Bible teaches that your conscience, you remember we talked about the conscience earlier today? Your conscience can actually become hardened. It can become so hardened that it actually becomes desensitized to sin. And Paul, Paul write, wrote in his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 too, he says, you've got to avoid teachers whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. See, see the reality is, and, and I've experienced this reality at times in my life, is that when you continue to give in to sin or you treat it lightly, your conscience can start to get this hard outer shell. It's like a thick buildup of callus, right? And, and when that happens, you become desensitized. Particular sins begin to bother you less and less. What used to make you cringe no longer does. And what happens is when your conscience gets seared, you no longer have a conviction for sin, and so there's no need for repentance. And let me just say, friends, this morning, if you have no conviction in your life for sin, you are in a really dangerous place. A really dangerous place. So what do you do? I mean, how do you, how do you restore a seared conscience? Well, the answer is simple. Assume a posture of repentance. Come into agreement with God. Draw near to God and discover who He is. 
and then make spiritual U-turns again and again. Get your hands on the driver wheel and start changing. And ask God to ultimately to restore and renew your conscience, to make it sensitive, to rip off that layer, that hard outer layer, and make it sensitive once again. So that you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. You have a renewed conscience. I mean, what would that look like for you? What would it look like every day if you had this uber-sensitive conscience and you decided that I was going to walk in repentance, I was going to change my life every moment of every day? What would that look like for you? Would you want that? And so let me encourage you to, to make repentance a daily habit. You know, I, I really think that it's important is that we allow God to conduct the moral inventory of our lives every single day. That we give him the freedom to do that. I mean, he is free to do it, but here's the thing is he honors your freedom. And so you have to be open and you have to be willing to allow God to conduct a moral inventory of your life. Because here's the thing, it's far better to have God conduct a moral inventory of your life today than in the day when you see him face to face. It's far better to have him do that today. I think it's important you do that. And, and I'm not sure what this would look like to you, but let me suggest a couple of things. What if in the morning you prayed to God and you just simply said, God, I surrender my life to you today. And today I, I, I want you to help me love what you love and hate what you hate and show me your way. And then at the end of the day, before you nod off to sleep at night, you say, God, where have I strayed on the path? Where have I, whatever I disobeyed the GPS, this inner Google Drive, Google Maps, and gone in the wrong direction. And then make a spiritual U-turn. Say, God, forgive me for that. Because you know what? The Father's at the end of the road. He's waiting for that spiritual U-turn. He is. He loves you. But you make that spiritual U-turn. And you do that every single day. But not just in the morning and the evening. What if you do it throughout the day? And it just becomes a habit of your life. Do you think that would change your life? I think it's a great start. I think it's a great beginning. And for the rest of this series, we're going to talk about some of the other things that are very important if you want to lead a restored life, becoming more and more like God through Jesus Christ. You might pray the, what the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139. Here's what he said. He searched me, God, know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me ask you this as I close. Do you want times of refreshing in your life? And how do you see God? Do, do, do you know that the, the Father is waiting at the end of the road for you to come to your senses and come home? And is there anywhere in your life right now where it's just so very obvious to your conscience that you need to make a spiritual U-turn? You know, we're going to have a time of communion. And communion, when we celebrate the Lord's table together, we have this time where we pause. And, and we do that intentionally in community because it's a time of reflection. It's a time where we say, God, search me, know my heart. It's a time where we make spiritual U-turns in our lives. And so today, as we enter into communion, and, and Colin's going to come up and lead us in just a moment, um, I want you to do that this morning. I invite you to do that this morning, to reflect and say, God, would you... Would you just show me? And then to respond to God's grace. You know, the fact that he gives you a conscience, the fact that he shows you the right way is a grace. The fact that he accepts us when we go the wrong way is a grace. The fact that he empowers us to live the right way is a grace.
And I wonder if today, if you could just respond to God's grace as we take communion together and make spiritual U-turns. Let me pray, and then Colin's going to come. Father, I pray that you would teach us more and more this grace of repentance. And we thank you that you are for us, not against us, that you want to restore our lives to radically transform them. And so, God, make our hearts sensitive. May we love what you love and hate what you hate. And we do this all because you first loved us. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.